The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Right now on Fast, a major rebound on Wall Street. The Nasdaq soaring more than 2.5% as markets try to close out the year on a high note. The S&P and Dow climbing back positive territory for the week, but with major indices all still firmly in the red for the year, is this rally all too little too late? Plus, spotlight on Southwest. Shares rising today, even as the airline cancels more flights. Does this week's turbulence set the stage for more scrutiny and regulation for the entire industry? We'll look for some answers. And later, we're taking a spin in the Fast Money time machine and heading back, back, way back to the 1970s. That's the last time a couple of big-name companies saw the kind of performance they put in this year. So can these stocks make a comeback like jumpsuits and bell-bottoms? Or are they going the way of the pet rock? We'll find out in a 70s-themed edition of Trade It or Fade It. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site in the heart of Times Square. On the desk tonight, Guy Adami, Dan Nathan, Jeff Mills, and Courtney Garcia. And we start tonight off with a countdown to the end of what has been a painful year for the markets. Even with today's gains, major indices well on pace for their worst 12 months since the financial crisis. But what can we hope for in the new year? To find out, we thought we'd ask our traders what chart they think holds the key to the markets in 2023. Dan, Nathan, let's start off with your most important chart. Yeah, let's talk about the largest bank stock in the market. That's J.P. Morgan, and it obviously has tremendous exposure to rates, to consumer credit, to you know housing, to corporate credit. I mean, the list goes on and on geographically, that sort of thing. And so when I think back a year ago, Mel, J.P. Morgan was very near its all-time highs. Um, it was obviously considered best of breed as far as banks are concerned here. And you know, it really led to the downside in January and February, and it took, I think, large parts of the market with it, or at least the signaling of its uh, leadership to the downside. Downside. Well, we've had a huge rally off of the mid-October lows. It was making new 52-week lows. It doubled the performance, the S&P 500, from the mid-October lows to just recently. Now it's come in a little bit. I think this one is going to be really important as we enter the new year, just from, again, a signaling standpoint. You look at that chart from a technical standpoint, looks to be like an epic um, head and shoulders top. You have that just a parabolic move that it's had in the last couple of months. So to me, I'm going to be closely watching J.P. Morgan, especially especially their earnings when we get them in mid-January and what Jamie Dimon has to say about the economy here and abroad and what he sees for just the course the, or the pace of rate increases. I know that they're going to end, but really, how long will they stay this elevated for? Yeah, and, and how would he characterize the storm that is still a-brewing? <laughs> because that is um, sort of the headline that he made the last time he had some significant commentary about the environment we were heading in, whether it be uh, could be a, a Hurricane Sandy or, or it could just be a, a passing storm here. Jeff Mills, would you be watching JPM as well? 
Yeah, absolutely. I'd be watching banks overall. I think I've mentioned it a number of times in terms of the relative performance. You know, J.P. Morgan's done better, but banks overall, you know, the relative performance relative to the S&P 500 has not been great. It's recovered a little bit over the last week or so, but I'd be watching that really closely. And I just think overall with banks, you know, even with some of the better names like maybe J.P. Morgan or Bank of America from a credit standpoint, I just don't want to be heavily exposed heading into a recession. And that really is our base case. I mean, J.P. Morgan said it themselves, I think maybe during their last earnings call, that if you get unemployment to 6%, we've never had a recession with unemployment below 6%. Uh, loan loss reserves go way up. You see loan demand come in. And I think that ends up being a headwind to earnings. So even at these valuations, which look pretty attractive, I think banks end up being a tough spot from relative performance perspective in 23. So he likes the chart in terms of what it may indicate, Guy, but does not like the stock. How about you? Well, I mean, Dan was channeling his inner Carter Braxton Worth with that head and shoulders <laughs> formation. And, you know, J.P. Morgan, deservedly so, is the most expensive on valuation, depending on whatever metrics you look at, it's there. But the question is, in this environment, an environment we seem to be going into, is this the right valuation? And I think probably not. You know, I still think some of these bank valuations can go lower. And I think it's going to be tough sledding in the first half of the year. And it's going to be on the back of what I bring up is my charter of the year in the business. That's called a tease, by the way. A tease. A deep tease because your your chart's going to be last. (laughs) I'm telling you that up front. Uh, Courtney is up next with her most important chart. Court, what are you watching? Yeah, I would take a look here um, at the iShares MSCI China ETF. And I, I know we've talked a lot about emerging markets, kind of our optimism in China here. This chart's actually pretty fascinating here because this hit a bottom at the end of October, which actually well before that they uh, abandoned their zero COVID policies. So I know that that's really what's top of mind on investors uh, um, on investors' minds right now. But this bottomed well before that, and I think it's really showing you that this is due for a rebound. You're kind of almost seeing this V-shaped recovery here. And realistically, as we look into 2023, China, which is the second largest economy in the world, finally reopening, really, when you look at GDP or corporate profits, is really one of the only large economies that is expected to have decent growth next year. So I definitely think this is something you want to take a look at going into 2023. Yeah. Um, Dan? Yeah, I'm less optimistic about what China has to offer for global growth. And a large part has to do with just the way in which they've managed COVID, the way they're coming out of zero COVID, the way in which the globe has decided, I mean, the West at least, has decided that they cannot be dependent on Chinese um, for the cheap manufacturing that they've relied on for decades here. And so I think deglobalization is going to continue um, to be a thing. And I think that's going to ratchet up this economic war that we're having with China. So to me, I think that we're emerged from COVID as just this bipolar world on a whole Mm -hmm. host of different levels here. And so I just don't think we're going to have the integration with the Chinese economy that we've had um, over the last 10 years, which has really been a boon since the financial crisis. So to me, I'm less optimistic about China. I think the point that Courtney was making is really interesting in terms of where we saw the most recent bottom, and that is the the end of October slash beginning of November. We saw it for, for many of the individual stocks that we watch typically on the show, such as an Alibaba, a JD.com, even a New Oriental Education. And so what did that tell us about where China was headed if those stocks were bottoming months before zero COVID was lifted? Guy, I mean, do you look at this maybe now that that was it? You sell the news, so to speak? Yeah, well, these listen, you know, this Alibaba has been in a downtrend basically yeah. for the better part of two and a half years. And, and you've seen 30 to 50 percent rallies off the bottom. And I think what you've just seen from that low of about 58.60 on an interday low, that $63 close is exactly that. But the reopening trade in China, all right, we'll go down to the next road. I mean, that would be very bullish, one would think. But 
Does that make the Federal Reserve's job that much harder? Because one would think if China does reopen in a meaningful way, it's just going to add to the already pretty visible inflation problem. So, you know, I don't know necessarily that a China reopen or a robust China helps in the long run what we're trying to combat. It seems almost like it might complicate things, Jeff Mills. I mean, by the time China gets sort of to perhaps a herd immunity status or to a point where it can sort of manage the waves of COVID that we're seeing, that should be when the Federal Reserve's rate hikes will take effect because of that lag effect there. And so you have all of that hitting the economy and then you've got these inflationary forces. I mean, that, that sounds like a, a, a conundrum to me. Yeah, I think that that's true in terms of trying to figure out the the interplay between all of the macro. And and it is interesting, right? Like if you go back to the bottoming of a lot of these China equity names, you saw a lot of the resource names, you know, Glencore, Rio, BHP, some of the U.S. steel names, they started to perk up as well. And they've been holding up relatively better than a lot of other areas of the market. So maybe they're trying to sniff out, you know, what China means for global growth and demand. But to Guy's point, you know, maybe that perpetuates an inflation situation that overall isn't good for our markets. And I I just think in China, it's very likely you see some consolidation near term. I mean, you have the the China ETF up 40 percent at Mm -hmm. resistance, a a name like Baba up 60 percent at resistance. And and I do agree with Dan that the whole COVID thing is kind of a mess right now, and it probably will be for some time. But to Courtney's point, I think once you get into the second half of the year, uh, the COVID situation starts to improve a little bit. Uh, you're going to get a tailwind from some stimulus there. Then the growth starts to pick up. So I do think it could be an interesting story to watch for the second half of next year. All right. So, Jeff, what is your chart? Yeah. So, you know, it's been kind of a, a macro driven year. So I'll give you guys a macro chart. And I'm not sure that there's anything that's been a bigger driver of markets than this. And it's looking at negative yielding debt. You know, this peaked out at over 18 trillion dollars of negative yielding debt. And we're basically down to zero. So what does that mean? Well, number one, I hope it means that this era of reckless policy is over. Uh, It clearly means that money is no longer free. It means that growth at any cost is dead. That's what we've seen in the market this year. I don't think that that changes anytime soon. And it also means that for the first time in a very long time, there is an alternative to stocks. And I think, you know, this move from 18 trillion in negative yielding debt to basically zero is such a huge driver. And and to your point, Mel, this move higher in global short rates, it's only just starting to impact the economy. So we're going to see that work its way through the system as we move through next year. And I said this on Friday, and I'll end with this. Some markets are ripe for risk-taking. Others are not. And I think this move in rates that we see via this chart, it just means that 2023 is not a year to be swinging for the fences. All right. And uh, let's segue into another area of the bond market. And that brings us to Guy Dami's chart. The most important one to watch, Guy, in your view, is? I think Jeff would agree with this as well. We've talked about this earlier, but it's HYG, the high-yield bond ETF. And again, this is something that historically doesn't trade until it does. This was an $88 item this time last year, plummeted down to $70.40 in October. We've bounced, but not nearly in a meaningful way. And I've been saying it and I'll say it again. They're no longer business cycles. They're credit cycles. And my concern, I don't think there's necessarily a Fed put in the form of the S&P. It probably comes in about maybe a thousand points lower than we currently are. But there is a Fed put in two things, probably a Fed put in the form of unemployment around 5 percent. And if the credit market deteriorates. So I think if you want to watch one thing 
uh, or many things this year. One of the things you have to watch <laughs> is how credit trades specifically had in the form of the HYG, Melms. Which brings us to the big question of the evening that we'll tackle here on Fast Money. How much corporate debt is coming due in the next few years? And is that a risk to markets if companies are forced to refinance at higher rates? <clears throat> Joining us now is to explain to CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman, the only person who's made it here on set with me. I was ex- <laughs> going to have some fun with people today, but everybody's remote. Sorry. Sorry. Anyway, Melissa, as you guys know, and all the panelists here know, debt makes downturns worse. And Wall Street is keeping a close eye on corporate debt and the Fed with the 2008 financial crisis fresh in mind. One positive factor, so-called rollover risk, that's the amount of debt that comes due each year. It's a relatively tame but still meaningful trillion dollars. And that's investment grade and high yield that needs to be refinanced. That's about 10 percent of the 10 trillion dollar corporate bond market. Bigger problems you can see are in 2024 and especially in 25 and in 26. John Giordano, head of credit research at Cantor Fitzgerald, tells me high yield and investment grade are in decent shape. But that doesn't mean there won't be pockets of pain. We'll be paying a lot of attention on how companies manage earnings and cash flow. Why is that? Well, it's because rollover risk is just one concern. Depending upon the depth of any potential downturn, earnings could come under pressure. Issuers then have to pay higher rates and a premium because of default concerns. There's already, you can see, uh, you know, it's the other side of uh, Guy's chart there. Hefty default premiums and rates. Yields on the lowest rated junk bonds, they've nearly doubled from 8% to north of 15% this year. Investment grade more than doubled to just below 2% to above 5% now on average. Daniel Iveson, he's chief investment officer at PIMCO, talked to him yesterday. He says, when you enter recession, you never know if it's mild or not, and you got to be real cautious about mostly most economically sensitive sectors of the market. So PIMCO, PIMCO, when it comes to credit, prefers these sectors that are less sensitive to cyclical uh, downturns, utilities, wireless towers, some tech, they call it mission-critical software, aerospace and food and restaurants, some tech, uh, and the optimistic scenario here, the Fed begins to cut rates before 2024 when the rollovers start. The current high level of rates suggests, though, the street is preparing for a worst-case outcome, Melissa. How does a person like Iveson think about investing in corporate debt at this point? Because we've seen, I mean, the bond market overall has had a terrible year, no matter what corner of the bond market you're in, including investment-grade corporate debt. So there's a lot of corporate debt that's highly, highly rated from the companies we all know that are held by, you know, companies that are not trading well. Maybe these are opportunities. I'm just... I think that's true. Like, you know, uh, he, he said he doesn't love credit here, uh-huh. but he doesn't hate it either. I mean, that's part of his job is to look out the spectrum and look for uh, different places where there could be value. And like I like to say, um, there is no risk except the risk you're not being compensated for. And so to the extent that you go out the spectrum and get to the junk, those junk bonds and get 15 percent, ask yourself the question, are you being compensated for that risk? And it may be true, considering, by the way, the risk-free rate has also come up, but spreads have widened, too. That's what you want to do is watch the spreads. Um, One quick thing, Melissa, there is um, a little ace in the hole here for your corporate bond investor. Uh At these rates, there's not going to be a whole lot of issuance. Right. So supply will Will contract contract. and and otherwise remain the same at these levels. So that could help uh, spreads a bit there. Yeah. Guy? Steve, that, that's a great scenario that you just pointed out, the fact that, you know, maybe we see a Fed um, easing cycle when a lot of this stuff is due. Will comp- do you think, you've done this a long time, do you think these corporations understand that and will try to game it out by using sort of short-term debt to bridge until the point where they could start looking a little longer term? So let me start off by saying any CFO who didn't term out his or her debt should lose their license to use Excel, in my opinion. I mean, that's 
pretty much what they were doing and what they did. And it looks like, Guy, they could have done this the right way. If you looked that chart again and you looked at the bulk of this rolls over 24-25, it looks like the CFOs were pretty smart. There is an area to watch, and I'll be reporting on this the next couple of weeks, which is the private credit market and the CLO debt that has very few covenants in it. That's another area where um, we're going to have to watch out for. Those have risen to be north of a trillion dollars. But this looks like... If they hit this right, this 2025 big peak right there, right. they might have hit it just well, right. See, the thing, though, that troubles me is that um, it'll still be a while before rates actually come down. So let's say the Fed starts cutting in 2024. How quickly are they going to cut? And the rates comparatively to wh what the rates are right now, which is pro probably pretty much zero percent for a lot of that corporate debt is still going to be relatively high. And what is what the what is the uh, the prompt, the, the catalyst that forces the Fed to cut rates? A recession. So earnings are weak. So we, we land you know, this Melissa, territory that doesn't seem like a great. I mean, yeah, it'll be better if the Fed starts cutting rate in 2024, but it certainly doesn't solve it. I want to respond to that one part that you okay. just mentioned there, which is uh -huh. a very interesting risk scenario that I think all investors need to be aware of. Uh -huh. If inflation remains high and we hit a recession, don't look for the Fed to come and bail you out. Guy is 100% right. There is a Fed put when it comes to systemic risk. Sure. But there's not a Fed put when it comes to default and losses in the private sector. There's a difference there. And that may make the scenario somewhat worse. But you're absolutely right that ultimately um, the, most of these companies will be refinancing into higher rates as far as you can see, because I don't see zero on the, I mean, just imagine if on a, your $100,000 mortgage, your payment goes up from 8,000 to, to 16,000 on the, on, the, yeah. on the junk bond level. And even for corporate, now they're gonna have to adjust. That means layoffs, that means cost construction, uh, cost okay. construction, other, other areas like that. They're gonna have to uh, watch themselves if they wanna maintain their profit margins. Steve, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. All right, coming up. Car stocks hitting all green lights in today's market. One options trader making a big bet on one name uh, that will continue to drive higher from here. That action ahead. But first, Netflix moving higher on a double upgrade. What is one analyst all bold on the streaming stock? We'll bring you the details next. Much more Fast Money in two. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link 
your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Netflix jumping more than 5% today after a double upgrade at CFRA. Analysts raising their uh, rating to a buy from a sell, saying it will be tough for competitors to catch up to the streaming giant, even if it doesn't lock in a major sports event. That's all thanks to Netflix's new, cheaper, ad-supported tier. And those ad offerings promise to be increasingly in focus for the streamers in the new year. Julia Borston has more on this. Julia. Well, Melissa, Netflix shares may have gained a lot today, and it's actually the leader of the FANG stocks over the past six months. But if you go back to the beginning of 2022, it has been a tough year for Netflix and the media giants. Now, year-to-date Netflix shares are down over 50%. Disney and Paramount shares both lost 44%, while Comcast declined 30%, and Warner Brothers Discovery shares are down 60%. Now, amid these declines, the focus has shifted away from chasing subscriber growth at any cost over to profitability. Morgan Stanley warns streaming growth is slowing, forecasting 2023 industry net additions at roughly half the 2021 pace, projecting consolidation of companies and services as well as cost rationalization. Needham warns that Netflix's peak subscribers may be behind it because churn is rising for all streaming platforms. Now, media companies are hoping to stem that churn with lower-cost ad-supported options, such as those that Netflix and Disney Plus launched in the last couple of months. They're also hoping to see growth in free ad-supported channels such as Pluto TV, the Roku channels, Amazon's Free V channel, and Fox's Tubi. Now, an original morning consult survey, which was conducted for CNBC, found that half of Americans are interested in switching streaming subscriptions to lower-cost ad-supported options, with millennials the most interested in discounted options. Now, with an economic downturn, the question is not just how much people will be paying for subscriptions, but also how much this downturn could prompt more cord-cutting and also what the impact will be on movie-going. Melissa? Julia, thank you. Julia Borston. Netflix has uh, soared nearly 80% off its May lows, but still down more than 50% for the year. Dan, you've been watching this. Yeah, I think that that Morgan Stanley data about net subscribers in Mm -hmm. 2023 and how they're tracking relative to 2021 is going to be really important. And again, I think we all know that there's been a lot of devastation across media and and many of these um, subscriber-based models as far as technology, consumer-focused. But things get worse before they get better in 2023. We just spent a lot of time talking about the headwinds to growth. And, and, you know, everything I was listening to Steve talk about the corporate debt market, it really results in costs rationalization and layoffs. And we also know that unemployment is at this kind of very near record lows. So again, I think a consumer that is getting a bit strapped here, consumer credits going higher, they're going to continue to look for lower cost ways. So to me, I I don't think you buy these things here. I like Disney for a lot of the reasons that maybe that analyst likes, um, you know, Netflix here, but I'm just not a buyer yet of these names. I think you're going to get a better opportunity early next year to do that. Yeah, and for Disney, at least, uh, it was yesterday's So Bad, It's Good offering from Steve Grasso, which Carter Braxenworth laughed at. I mean, he laughed at all the the picks that the traders had last night, including Disney. Courtney, do you like Disney? 
I would I would choose a Disney over Netflix here, and I, I I do get the idea that an ad supported tier will help, but ultimately when you look at a Netflix, it is slow in growth. I really don't see their subscribers to pick up the way it has over the last several years, and especially amid su such competition like a Disney, and it trades at over 30 times next year's earnings, whereas a Disney comes in a lot cheaper and. They just brought in their new CEO. They have a lot of other business sources that can pick up in case their um, streaming services isn't the thing that's going to benefit in 2023. So I would absolutely choose a Disney here rather than a Netflix. I'd personally rather pay for fewer subscriptions than suffer through ads. I don't know how you guys feel. I feel like, <laughs> like the, the horse is out of the barn. I don't know where that expression came from, but it's gone. It's like gone so far. You cannot see the tail or the mane or any part of that horse. It's so far. I have no patience with ads. And I wonder if more people, you know, people say in surveys they're willing to do that. But in the end, they're like, Ugh, I cannot stand this, Jeff. Sound like my kids. We watch regular TV and they're like, <laughs> what, what is this? What am I looking at? They don't even know what a commercial is. But you're going you're gonna to have to do one or the other. And I stumbled across this chart uh, from Piper Sandler today. I thought it was kind of interesting. So spending on streaming is still 13% above the pre-COVID trend, not the pre-COVID mm. level, but the extrapolated trend. So you know, there is still sort of more money going in that direction that might, that might be sustainable if we see things get pared back or if growth slows next year. So I did think that was interesting from just a cyclical perspective. And ultimately what I think is going to be the catalyst for a stock like Disney, let's just say, is having this all become net cash flow positive. I think that's the key. And I do think if more people look to the ad-based tier, that does generate a higher revenue per user. So if there's more interest there, that's a good thing. An increase in subscription fees, even if it comes to the cost of growth, um, if you start to see evidence of that, if you start to see evidence of profitability estimates being pulled forward, that could be a catalyst for a stock like Disney at these levels. But I do agree with Dan. You know, cyclical headwinds, that spending trend I mentioned, um, these are going to be challenges over the next couple of quarters. Better entry lower on these names, Guy, just quickly. Yeah, I think so. And clearly you're not a fan of the old school fast money advertisements that used to run because I got to tell you something. There was a faction of people oh, that would just watch the network the, for the those. The ones where you were, guy, when you were singing the holiday yes. carols. Yeah. So it was amazing. Time of year, by the way. We should probably, <laughs> yes. yeah, I'm just saying. Ho, ho, ho. Do you have a trade? Does this continue or that's it? Oh. So, listen, I'll say quickly, we talked about it in the spring. When Netflix traded down to 180, uh, collectively we said at these valuations, it's a screaming buy, was probably going to fill a gap a little north of 300. That's what happened. Now it's sort of no man's land. I mean, this is everything that's happening is what Tom Rogers said. But I think you're looking for an exit level here rather than an entry level on the long side. All right. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. The auto trade revving up. From legacy car makers to the new kids on the EV block, the sector seeing a lot of green today. We dive into the options pits to see if the rally has gas. Plus, calling all flower children, it's about to get groovy as we throw it back for a 1970s special edition of Trade It or Fade It. Go grab your Jackson Brown 8-track tape because you're not going to want to miss this. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. 
Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Wall Street's last gasp at a year-end rally finally coming for the beaten-down auto stocks. Tesla, Ford, and GM all hitting the gas today. And options traders are betting that the gains could get even bigger in the new year. Mike Coe's got the action. Mike. Yeah, so uh, on what would ordinarily be a relatively slow week, we did see well above average call volume in Ford. It traded 1.7 times its average daily call volume. And the most active contract were the January 12 strike calls. We saw over 25,000 of those trade for a quarter, and there were several institutional blocks in that. Buyers of those calls are betting that the rally we saw today could continue, and we'll see the stock up more than 6% over the course of the next three three weeks. Courtney, you also like Ford? You know, as a long-term investor, I've liked Ford. I mean, it's dirt cheap here, and I do think they're in this multi-year global restructuring, right? They're bringing down uh, bringing down um, their costs. They're going to become more profitable. I do think short-term, however, interest rates and vehicle profitability are going to continue to um, just be an issue for not just Ford, but your autos in general. So I would actually wait a little bit here. But if you're looking at one to three-year time horizon, absolutely, you can look at a Ford. All right, Mike, thanks. We'll see you tomorrow which is the final options action of 2022. Full show uh, tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, Wells Fargo with a somewhat contrarian bet on the group that could outperform in 2023. We'll be joined by Chris Harvey, head of equity strategy, for a look on where to put your money next year. And after a bumpy start for the week for Southwest, shares flying high today, but should investors expect more turbulence ahead? The trade, and we come right back. Stay tuned. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money Podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money Stocks. Uh, the market staging a powerful rally, checking on stocks with one day trading uh, to go in 2022. The Dow's up. 345 points in today's session. The S&P and NASDAQ locking in their best performance of the month. The NASDAQ leading the gains up more than 2.5%. Meta platforms among big tech's biggest winners today, bouncing more than 4%, but it is still down 64% this year. What'd you make of this rally, Guy? Well, I mean, people chalk it up to seasonality. They're going to chalk it up to, you know, the fact that it's a dull market. I say, you know, if you look at what we've done, this makes sense. Look at the move we had back in March. Look at the move back in October, in June. We've seen rallies along the way, but we have had a series of lower highs and lower lows since this time last year. And I don't see anything changing that in the foreseeable future. So I think it was a lot of junk that just sort of got marked up. You'll probably see it again tomorrow. But as you know, Melms, I'm not particularly bullish here. I know you're not. Um, Big tech, though, it seemed to bounce today. Jeff, was that just a head fake? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think it depends where you're looking. So you mentioned Meta, but think about these stocks like Tesla, Apple, Microsoft, Google, NVIDIA. I looked at those names today. They're an average of 44% above their pre-COVID highs, even with the moves lower we've seen this year. But yes, obviously earnings are higher. But the question is, do those earnings come down? And earnings have come up, um, but PEs aren't dramatically lower. Like Apple, for example, was trading at 23 times. Now it's trading at 20 times. So you're getting a bit of a valuation benefit there, but it's not that much. And then on the other side, you have an Amazon and a Meta 
They're an average of, I think, 35 or 36 percent below those pre-COVID highs. Uh, they are a lot cheaper from a valuation standpoint. And in my opinion, they're still pretty darn good businesses. So I think you have to start making distinctions between names where you're, be- you're being given uh, sort of a valuation gift versus names which maybe haven't re-rated yet to the extent that they probably will. All right, let's get more on today's rally as well as the outlook for 2023. Bring in Wells Fargo Securities, um, which expects growth stocks to make a comeback. Chris Harvey joins us now. He's the firm's head of equity strategy. Chris, great to have you with us. Good to be here. Very tanned and relaxed, Chris Harvey. Um, You like services over stuff. That's a big theme for for 2023. Does that mean tech? Does that mean growth? Does that, I mean, what does that mean? Uh, It it doesn't mean tech. So we're underweight tech hardware, and, and that's part of stuff. Just quickly on the theme. The theme for 2023 is services over stuff because the U.S. consumer has gorged him or herself on on housing, on cars, on goods. They have a new basement. Their basement is full of stuff. They have a new garage. The garage is full of stuff. Stuff's falling off the shelves. What we want to do and what we expect to see the consumer do is move from spending on goods to spending on experiences. Where that puts us, we think the fat pitch for 2023 is mid-cap growth because the environment is going to be more conducive to growth. We think you're going into an environment where growth, where, where inflation is coming down, where economic growth is slowing, where rates have either peaked or going to peak. And then when we looked around the growth space, we still don't like large cap growth, but we looked at mid cap growth and you're trading at 14 times revenue, excuse me, 14 times earnings. You've derated for multiple years. You've got an oversold situation that's beginning to bounce and you've had expectations that have been lowered. So we think that that pitch, that best risk reward for 2023 is that mid-cap growth space. What's the one thing that that would derail this thesis? The the, the one thing that you're thinking on that, that could be the thing. (laughs) Well, I think the one thing that could derail everything is, does the Fed, so everyone expects the Fed to go, the Fed has been very loud and and, and very convincing. We're going to get to 5%. In and around 5%, we're going to stay there. But if the Fed gets to 5%, stays there for a while, doesn't like what it sees and starts to move rates even higher, that can just derail everything. And and that's the fly in the ointment for for 2023. Does the Fed get more aggressive? We don't think so. We think they stay in around that 5%, but that could be a major issue for us and and for for all styles and and for all parts of the, the risk market and the equity market. Hey, Chris, it's Jeff Mills. So I've been talking about this sort of quality growth thesis. Maybe the growth surprises people a little bit in terms of style leadership next year. You're talking about mid-cap growth. You kind of glanced across the idea that maybe that translates into large cap as well. So maybe hit on that a little bit specifically. And then are there any other areas sort of in the traditional S&P 500 names that you're looking at? Sure. So a lot there. And let me see if I can can take it all apart. The, The first thing I would say is just on the market in general, we think things have to get worse before they get better. We think the equity market's going to go down um, in the first half of the year, but we will rally after that. And, and why are we going to rally? Because, again, it gets back to what the macro backdrop. You have a lower growth environment, potentially lower inflationary environment. What has derated so far? Growth has derated from a price and from a, an earnings point of view. And that's when you have that macro backdrop, we think that's very conducive for growth stocks. And the S&P 500 is more or less the growth index. Within the S&P 500, one of the areas of growth or where we think there's growth at the right price is its median entertainment space. There's a lot of former high flyers in there that are now trading with a real PE, and we think there's real value there. But at the end of the day, 
you know, that, that fat pitch is still mid-cap growth. Chris, great to see you. Thanks so much. Great to see you, too. Chris Harvey at Wells Fargo. Uh, Courtney, you like what Chris is pitching for 2023? I mean, he definitely makes some really valid points here. Um, whether it's your large cap, your mid cap, I'm still really not overweighting growth here. I do think that some of your higher rates are likely still going to put some pressure on there. Um, I understand what he's saying, though. I could see both sides of this, but I, I'm not overweighting this currently. Yeah. Uh, Dan? Yeah, you know, it's funny. It seems like there's a lot of very smart investors, strategists out there who think that the prior leaders are not going to be the leaders out of this kind of bear market. And I kind of disagree with that. I, I just really feel like the way the market is constructed right now, the stock market, that some of the mega cap tech names, they're not even that impacted by higher rates because they have these tremendous moats, monopolies, their balance sheets, tons of cash, all that sort of stuff. So I'd fully expect like mega cap tech to lead when we do bottom. And those are the sorts of names that I actually want to dollar cost average at some point next year when it feels ugly and you're going to have to kind of hold your nose and do it because no one's going to ring the bell at the bottom but i think that that safety in some of that that those kind of the microsoft and the apple and, and even the amazon and the google i think that's kind of kind of where you're going to want to be as we emerge from this bear market still to come what does a specialty chemicals company have in common with a discount retailer Nothing, except that they're both in tonight's round of everyone's favorite game, Trade It or Fade It. That is coming up soon. But first, shares of Southwest feeling a little love today. But how much will this week's rampant cancellations hit the company's results? We'll get the latest when Fast Money returns. Lock in your membership now. Join Jim Cramer and the CNBC Investing Club with the special year-end discount. Go to CNBC.com slash Club New Year or scan this code to sign up. Welcome back to Fast Money. The meltdown at Southwest Airlines this past week will certainly hit Q4 results. That's according to the company's chief commercial officer, who spoke to reporters this afternoon. He didn't, though, provide an estimate of how much damage the disruptions will cost. Southwest shares were slightly lower in the after-hour session, but didn't erase the day's gains. CEO Bob Jordan told staff in a memo earlier in the day that he expects the company will return to normal operations with minimal disruptions tomorrow and that all hands are on deck to support restored operations. But as this continues to drag on, flights were canceled today. Guy, um, there are growing calls for another passenger bill of rights for guaranteed refunds of, of flight de delays that are more than three hours, that airlines that took pandemic aid have more of an obligation to do this. Does this hang over the I industry? It should. It absolutely should. It's it's reprehensible what's going on. I mean, you see, the, if you watch the news, you can't watch 15 minutes without videos of people stranded at airports, luggage strewn across rows and rows of the baggage claim, lines that seemingly extend longer than the men's room at Madison Square Garden during the New York Ranger playoff game. It's ridiculous. It's not cool. So there should be a bill of rights. With that said, these airlines basically get away with murder. Now, they are trading vehicles. But I want to put, point you towards Boeing quickly, Melms. Look at where we recently topped out at about 193, and look at where we cascaded lower from this spring, March, to be specific, 193. I think you take your money and run in Boeing and then let the chips fall where they may in the airlines. Courtney, you were right in the middle of all this with a dog, a one-year-old, and a husband. <laughs> and you had to drive um, from New Mexico to California to complete your trip. So how do you feel about this as an investor from an investing standpoint? 
Yeah, and thank goodness I did. I clearly would not have gotten a flight for days. So yeah, wish me luck getting back to New York. So hopefully I don't have to drive back there too. But um, no, as, as an investor, I mean, despite all of this craziness, and I was one of the ones who had a flight canceled on me, I do actually still like the airlines here. I do think they're well, think they're well valued. Southwest and Delta have been names that I like in that space. I do think that they continue to have good balance sheets. Um, this clearly is going to affect this quarter's earnings. And I think that's going to be something to continue to watch as we could still have some short-term dips here. But I would look at those dips as some longer-term opportunities because that demand towards travel is not going away. The valuations still look great here, and they have become a lot more efficient here after COVID. And so I do think longer term, despite what's going on right now, I do actually still like the airlines. Yeah. Jeff, do you think this could be an overhang for the airlines? I mean, they're just talking about investigating this on the Hill, calling people up. You know, they're probably going to call a bunch of airline executives. Why do you delay flights? Why don't you get passengers refunds? How come there's no bill of rights? This, that and the other thing um, as we're trying to trade them. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's not going to help, right? And I, I think it's an industry that was already challenged from a fundamental perspective. You, you clearly had some big increases in debt and share issuances and, and all sorts of things that has ha- have happened since 2020. And we've talked about airlines a bunch over the last couple of years, and I don't think I've said anything nice about them since. Uh, I'll say they are cheap. So that's one thing. So you want to play for a bounce. It's not a crazy strategy. It's just not a place that interests me. Guy took the words right out of my mouth. I think they are trading vehicles. They're not investments. United, American, they've been dead money for 20 years. So it's just not for me. Coming up, trade it, fade it, or post it. Get ready to take notes on tonight's new trader picks for our favorite game. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. A retro reversal happening on Wall Street. Check out these stocks boogieing way down and having their worst years since the 1970s. VF Corp, Walt Disney, Target, 3M, all posting huge losses in 2022. Jeepers Creepers. I guess it's a 70s thing. So we thought this would be a perfect time to play a little game of... Trade it or fade it! That's right, trade it or fade it, a retro 70s edition. Let's kick things off with VF Corp, the owner of Vans and the North Face, having its worst year since at least 1972. That was back when Nixon was president. Courtney, trade it or fade it? I'd actually fade this year. Um, They just really haven't been immune to the slowdown you've had in apparel. Even something like their North Face brand really just hasn't been immune there. They are still working off that excess inventory, so they're likely still going to have some lower margins over the next couple quarters here. So I would fade this. Jeff, trade it or fade it? So we talked about this one a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. I'll trade it here. I I said we bought a very small position about a month ago in a dividend strategy we have. And I I think the sizing of our position sort of balances the risk that we're talking about relative to growth in the consumer. Now, I do agree with Courtney in that, you know, their position in the retail market isn't great. I used the word middling brands the last time we talked about it. You know, it's not high end. It's not discount. Uh, It kind of falls in that no man's land, which I don't know is necessarily great. Uh, But at the same time, nothing is broken with the company. It pays a massive dividend, which they do seem committed to. So for the type of strategy that we own the stock in, uh, I do think it's interesting at these prices. All right. Next up, 3M's worst year since 1974, when Barbara Streisand's The Way We Were was topping the charts. Guy, trade it or fade it? I fade that song, but I'll (laughs) trade Triple M because, I mean, it's been been an an awful stock and I think some of the bad news is out that earplug litigation, they're moving it to a subsidiary. Um, I think all these things are sort of in the rearview mirror. Valuation is somewhat compelling. They report in the middle of January. 
This is the stock I think it sort of levitated in earnings, so trade it, Melms. Courtney, trade it or fade it, Triple M. I'd actually fade this here. I do think this is a company who really doesn't have a lot of pricing power because of all their competition here. And they are going to be looking at their operating margins that have been basically stagnant over the last decade, despite the fact they're growing. And it is because they really aren't going to be able to increase their prop their profitability just based on the competition that they have. And it's pricing power you want next year. I don't think they have it. So I would actually fade this. Moving on, Disney also not seeing declines like this since 1974. Dan, trade it or fade it. Yeah, I, I'd trade this one, and this is one I think you start dollar-cost averaging if it gets back to those kind of pre-pandemic uh, or those pandemic lows in around 80. I mean, listen, I know this is a consensus kind of thought here that, um, you know, Bob Iger's back, and why would you bet against Bob Iger? But, you know, with the with the stock where it is, where it's trading on a multiple on the out year, I think he's probably going to come in and kitchen sink the current year, and then you're going to really start valuing it on next year. And I think somewhere in the low 80s to high 70s, it's really going to be a great buy for the next few years here where were you on wall street in 1974 guy and would you trade or fade disney i i was celebrating my 50th birthday it's interesting you said nixon administration because i actually voted for him the first time against kennedy that would be 1960 just so you understand my age here i'm gonna fade disney i don't even understand dan's answer i don't know if he was trading or fading it but i'll play the game correctly and say fade uh, because I think by definition, if you think the market's taking a leg lower, Disney won't be spared. Fade. All right. Target is the next one up. Uh, missing the bullseye, having its worst year since 1973. That's when The Exorcist was the top grossing movie. Jeff, trade it or fade it? Yeah, I worry a little bit about the product mix with, with the Target. You know, home furnishings, 20% of sales, apparel, another 20%. I don't want to make this a, a would you rather, but it's a more cyclical business than, than, say, a Walmart. So I just think there are better alternatives if you're looking for a stock like this. Can you believe Mills pulled a Grasso tonight? You pulled a Grasso. <laughs> you played the game and then you made it your own. Um, Dan, would you trade it or fade it? Well, yeah, I'm going to comment on the game. First things first, okay, I, I, I've been on Wall Street for 25 years, okay? And okay, no so. one says buy or sell right here, right now, that sort of thing, okay? So I'm so not trading it. I just think it's like guys yeah. coming at me about the uh, – I'm, I'm saying – like I'm, I'm, I'm gonna buy this into support. I'm gonna do the same thing with Target. This is not my full position here, so I'm trading it. I think they're gonna get some of these inventory issues under control over the next kind of few months or so. You're gonna want to own it here. All right. All right. Um, it wasn't all bad news though. Let's move on. Occidental Petroleum having its best, yes, best year since at least 1972. Guy, trade it or fade it. I'll trade that sucker playing it the correct way, and I'll say I like energy. Energy stocks have held in rather well despite the commodity trade it, Melms. All right, up next, final trades. Final trade time, Courtney. Uh, MCHI made my case for this earlier, but on a China reopening, I'd take a look at this play. Dan. Yeah, JetBlue, I'd stop it on the downside at six and a target of eight the upside. Jeff Mills. Yeah, Danaher, it's a healthcare name we like. It looks like it's putting in a bottom to me. I think it's an outperformer in 23. Guy. PSX has a date with the summer of 2018 highs, Melms. 2000, okay. Uh, thanks for watching Fast Money. CNBC special Taking Stock 2023 with a focus on China starts right now.
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. FedEx.